Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome once again for our weekly clinical updates of COVID-19 uh, hosted by ICR at uh, NIH in Satya Allah. Uh, I'm Christopher Lee and uh, I'm privileged again to have a chance to join you all for this uh, very exciting afternoon where we again look at the current situation of COVID-19, but for once we are looking at the flip side of COVID-19, not just looking at the number of cases we have, the number of deaths, ICU admissions, but also what's happening to the other side of medicine as we deal with this pandemic. And we all must acknowledge in the last couple of months, uh, our focus has been very much on this pandemic. We may have taken our eye away from our standard core business that we have to deal with day to day. People still have heart attacks, people still need to get their diabetics, diabetes control, people still need to get their surgeries done, and people still have motor vehicle accidents. And I think while we continue to focus on COVID-19, uh, we're still in the midst of the pandemic, we do have also to take uh, cognizance of what's happening on the other side. Uh, so I think it's very timely indeed that ICR is hosting this particular webinar, and we have three uh, very relevant and appropriate speakers to deal with these topics, to give us a glimpse of what we should be looking at as well, so that we do not forget any section of our, our society. I am now have the pleasure of uh, introducing uh, the three speakers we have today. Uh, as I mentioned just now, we're looking at how COVID-19 is impacting on the, on the emergency care attendance in the hospitals, our general hospital admissions, as well as the mortality on our population at large. So with us this afternoon, we have three speakers. I will introduce them one by one as they come up to speak. Uh, so that we can give them the full focus. First off, uh, I think Dr. Mahata Abdul Wahab is already online. Right. Mahata, welcome. Uh, I hope you can hear us. He is, of course, a consultant emergency physician uh, at Hospital Kuala uh, Lumpur. He's the head of the department there. He's also the national head of service for uh, emergency at the Ministry of Health. Uh, I've known him many years as a young man, and now he's a senior big shot in the Ministry of Health now, and we're all very proud of him. Uh, his area of interest, of course, is in emergency critical care, critical ultrasound, as well as medical law. So we don't mess around with Mahata. He might sue me. So Mahata, bear with me today. If I say something wrong, give me a break. Okay? So I, first off, we will talk, of, of course, about emergency care attendance during this COVID pandemic. And now I pass the floor to Dr. Mahata. You have the floor. Uh, very good afternoon, uh, Dr. Chris. Thanks for a very kind introduction. I hope you can hear me very clearly. It's a pleasure to be part of this webinar, to be sharing our experience, actually, how that COVID-19 actually uh, affected our services, uh, especially emergency services in Malaysia. What I would like to actually uh, share with all of you today actually what we have gone through over the last uh, nearly two months now actually when facing this uh, particular uh, pandemics uh, what we realized actually uh, this pandemic has caused lots of difficulties in our day-to-day -day practice it's not just in the hospital setup and more so emergency department becoming the first department that facing such challenges before I move on, I would like to thank my team, actually, uh, in, with regards to preparing this particular presentation. 
Pedidaya, Dr. Shaliza, our pharmacist, Mr. Wilson, and the rest of the team. So put it this way, uh, I, we actually assume uh, this as a, a ship. We, want, we actually we need to weather a storm. And based on this uh, weathering of the storm, actually you have to ensure we are really prepared actually for this particular uh, journey. So we're going to look at the outbreak. We're going to look at the preparatory phase, how we get things ready, and the collision itself facing the storm, and actually how much of adaptation and maneuvering that we need to do in order for us to get out of the storm successfully. And then later on, actually, we're going to see how actually you're maneuvering towards the new norms in our emergency medicine practices. So all in all, this is actually is a brief summary how emergency medicine uh, practices work. We have a pre-hospital care arrivals of the patient, either by self, peripherals, or ambulance. And also we have the diagnostic therapeutic cost resuscitative component, followed by the subsequent disposition of the patient. As I said, actually, we are we actually wanted to face a storm. In order for us to, to face a storm, there are many actually preparatory phase components that we need to do in order for us to make sure that we pass through the storm in the, what I call in as safe as possible. And then along the way, actually, there's some adaptation in terms of maneuvering our ship to make sure that we are safely passing the storm. And towards the end, there's a new norms that we need to able to establish. So all in all, we look at this slide. This is give a brief summary, actually, how this medicine services work. All along, we have three methods of referral. Either they come in themselves, it's by the referral, by our what we call colleague out there and thirdly via ambulance. And in the medicine department, there will be not just diagnostic, but also there's therapeutic component and resuscitative component being carried out. And finally, there's a disposition endpoint to all the patients that come over to the medicine department. And this is the perspective of uh, Malaysian perspective, actually, in terms of COVID. So we, we know actually by late December that the outbreak occurred in China. We are giving in the alert phase. During this phase, actually, we already look into how that we can able prepare this particular pandemic. So, if you look actually what it emergency department HKL initiative do actually, there are many many components of preparatory phase that have been done. God bless actually prior to this outbreak, we have the emergency department preparedness plan. We also have the pre-hospital care preparedness plan. And we are lucky actually, we have the MERS COVID and the Ebola outbreak preparedness plan as well, actually, as part of our and preparation. And we have a structural requirement minimal to that basis, which is the decontamination area. And we are also blessed, actually, we have the first emergency department association ward made available in HKL. And on top of that, we already did a bit of stockpiling in order to cater for such needs during such outbreak. And subsequently, actually, all this actually was ready just before the first imported case was broke up. And this is where actually the storm starts to build up. And then after that, we are start to operationalizing our coronavirus, what I call mass screening area, which is uh, by the end of January. So we did the preparation during the Chinese New Year break. And then we start operating on the 30th of January. And then we have a live period and then the storms arrive. So happen. Then we introduce the new asthma management workflow. We have to come up with a new triage system. We have to come up with a 
aerosol generating procedure, the PAPR, the isopods, the new zoning, and of course, we introduce new tools in terms of management for our patient. And on top of that, we have what I call PPEs based on zoning to ensure our healthcare is really protected, especially when facing this particular uh, pandemics. And subsequent to that, actually, we need to inculcate our staff how actually to work with the new environment, uh, with the new norms, actually, maybe, maybe in the coming years or so. So look at the first one. So when we do our preparation, I think the most important, actually, we must, to, we must have the system in place because we know, actually, we cannot rely on human beings. So we've got persons come and go, but the system stays. So we need to invest on the system. So what we do, actually, we develop the system first, and then we develop the structures based on the system. Then we tailor our human resource need uh, in order for us to cater for the system that we have agreed upon. So what are the systems that we created? The first system, actually, for those persons under investigation. Either the stable patient and the not stable patient. The stable patient, of course, will be directed toward the coronavirus, what I call mass screening area, but the unstable patient will be managed accordingly in our decontamination room, which is negative pressures. They're able to accommodate two patients at the same time. Uh, and for those stable patients, initially, we are, during the first week, the numbers are not many, but we realized that over the coming week, the number is. So we did our preparatory phase just before Chinese New Year. We worked along during the Chinese New Year break to get the things ready. By the end of the Chinese New Year, what I call the, uh, the CMSA area has been ready actually to cater for the cases. And we are lucky also by the 30th of January, uh, the negative pressure isolation ward, which is 12 beds, actually is made available and ready to be used as well. So this is an added advantage actually uh, to us. So God bless, actually, this actually has been ready before the storms comes along. So, and then we create the CMSA pathways. When, when another system that we develop, it's not just the system. Once we create the system, we test out the system. There, actually, we conduct the simulation, so on and so forth, before the first patients come in. And we already started doing the hand hygiene and PPE training even before that to ensure 100% coverage within one week. So for, I think for all information, many of you have worked in the medicine department, HKL. We have a total staff of 661 staff at the moment. And during this period, we have to cater especially for the doctors and the nurses. So it's about 500 of doctors and nurses need to be trained within a week or so. And also on top of that, actually, we have to continue doing the surveillance for the PPE so on. So we continue training, swap, sample handling, so on and so forth. So when we got the first, got to know about the first imported cases, we start our CMSA operating on the Twitter January, where actually the patients come in, in numbers. So we have all this, actually we come out the videos, presentation, so on and so forth, which is gladly actually has been shared by our DG in his Facebook with nearly what, 850,000 overviews so on and so forth and shared. And look at these patients attendant. If we realize actually our average patient attendance actually in the emergency department HKL is amounting between 600 to 800 cases per day. We are also fortunate actually by this time we're able to shift the pediatrics cases over to Hospital Tunku Aziza. So without shifting of that numbers actually emergency department HKL you need 
cater for nearly a thousand cases a day. So during this period, actually, there's no change, in fact, for the numbers of patients that coming over to emergency department. But if you realize when the MCO start to be implemented in the mid-March, and then we, re we realize actually the numbers of patients drop drastically, especially the trauma-related cases. So even now, actually, our number is only reaching about 50% of our usual load, which is around 300 patients per day rather than 600 patients per day. So all in all, the black color, actually, you can see these are the numbers of cases that we see in our CMSA uh, area for the purpose of screening, so on and so forth. And these are the numbers as so cases that came over to our uh, CMSAs, which is, this is where actually at the peak arises where actually the MCO uh, being implemented. And you can see the downside of start to coming down later on after that. And these are the numbers of cases that we need to deal with with regards to procedures. So in January and February, you can see what sorts of numbers, those patients intubated on BiPAP, asthma patients, so on and so forth. When MCO starts to come in, numbers reduced dramatically in April, you can see there's very, very significant reduction for those cases that are coming over. And this by itself actually eased up the congestion in the department. So we can tell it through the needs of the, uh, what we call uh, pandemics. So we know already actually, when actually uh, COVID-19 has come, one of the main issues that we need to address in the department of handling of the what we call aerosol generated procedures because this is mandated because there's a lot of nebulization being carried out, there's lots of intubation being carried out, there's many, many non-invasivization being conducted. So these are the ones that we targeted first to train our medical officers. So we are, we come up with step-by-step, -step, uh, what I call sequencings of uh, rapid sequence intubation that need to be tailored to minimize the aerosol generated procedures. So by the first week of March, actually we already come, uh, yeah. Uh, what we call introduce this to all our healthcare personnel and we keep on training and then we also actually have to utilize those equipment actually they're able to keep a significant distance to the patient rather than doing the what I call direct langoscopy we are using the video assisted langoscope for the purpose of intubation and also at the same time training our staff to protect from protection from the what we call the aerosolism procedure. So rather than using what we call uh, the face mask or nasal CPAP, actually for our non-invasive ventilation, we resort to helmet CPAP, which is have, studies have shown actually have uh, what we call very much reduction in terms of aerosol generation in comparing with the what we call uh, conventional faces of mask CPAP. So, but importantly, actually we need to address those patients that came in for nebulization, as for the mild to moderate. Because we realize this is actually at a higher risk in terms of providing transmission to not just to another patient, but also to our healthcare workers. And we learned this from SARS, I think, last time. So what do we did, actually? We introduced, we are using the MBI spaces rather than nebulizers for all cases of mild to moderate asthma that came over to our department. So what we did, actually, we come up with the pathways for this then we use a modified, initially we don't have these spaces, which is a bit expensive. So we use a modified spaces or modified chambers. And we come up with algorithm, which is actually has been advocated by uh, what, uh, what we call, uh, even our by local authority, even has been advocated in, in many, many countries. So 
Rather than using a nebulized oxygen driven nebulizer, we are using spacer to introduce it. So the ordinary dose of 5 milligram, we convert that to about between 4 to 10 pounds of uh, or required, so on and so forth. So this algorithm we utilize. So once we utilize this algorithm, we realize, if you notice these figures, this is a very uh, important uh, data to suggest actually the outcome of using uh, metered dose inhaler via spacer is as good as using nebulization. So the, what I call the green column actually, those are the patient uh, that we discharge after mild to moderate asthma. The red column actually is those patients that require up triage, meaning that are successful of nebulization. So if you look at the numbers, pre-COVID, there's about 800 over patient, and post-COVID or during COVID, which is 500 over patient, there's no significant difference at all I think, in terms of those patients that require up triaging. So we only reserve nebulization for asthmatic patients only for those life-threatening asthma. So, and then now actually this has been in practice in, in, in our department. It's not just in HKL, but almost all emergency departments all over Malaysia. So this is by itself a very significant ways actually to reduce the aerosolgenesis procedures to our healthcare workers and also subsequently to other patients as well. And we also utilize the isoport for the purpose of patient transfer. I think some of you have seen this, actually those intubated patients. It's not just that, that we come up with the system, actually how this, uh, uh, what I call, uh, uh, what I call this uh, equipment can be utilized uh, accordingly. Then actually one incident, then we realized actually after we have that all preparation, we, we start to have cases of sari turn COVID. I think, Many of us knows actually uh, at HKL, the initial data, we have 7.4% of our SARI patient turn COVID. This was about two months ago. And as of last week, it's uh, reduced to 2.5%, meaning that there are still SARI cases turn COVID. So meaning that when we have that, actually we need to do something with our triage system. So we need to develop a new triage system rather than based on severity alone, so our triage system now will address toward severity and also the possibility of infectivity to patient and healthcare worker. So this has introduced by mid-March actually in order to cater for those sorry cases. Rather than the ordinary green, yellow or red for the patient, now we have two separate zones, the respi zone and the non-respi zone. So the respi zone is considered as a dirty zone. The non-respi zone is considered as the clean zone. And this also triage system is also being utilized in all other departments in this. And it's not just that, but we also have to have a different system how we work in our what we call dirty zone. We previously is all open concept cubicle. We still have that, but now the difference is we have dirty line and the clean line actually for our doctors. For those that beyond the red line is the dirty area, those that within the green blue line actually is the clean area. This is a very clear demarcation that very simple to do that we carry out in day-to-day -day practices in order to avoid unnecessary contamination. And we come up with the Ethical Pembangkai and PPE, this also has been shared, I think, by our Deputy Director General of Health I think, in, in early April to make sure that the PPE utilization is not just appropriate, but also is 
with regards to the guideline and also optimally used rather than wasteful in terms of which is a very important component actually. So, and we, it's not just that, uh, we also work together with our colleague in the medical actually in terms of disposition of these various patients from RESPI. So those patients from CMACs go to BI ward, there's a from DECON of course go to uh, ICU, so on and so forth. And those patients that SARI patients go to the SARI ward and then this SARI patient is further divided into high probability or low probability SARI. So this is an example of recertification that we've done for HKL. We don't do this alone. We work together with uh, our colleague in the medical department, nephrology, anesthesiology, so on and so forth, to come up with very clear, simple, actually, uh, methods of uh, recertification for our SARI patient position. Why we need this? Because re resource is limited. Uh, resources need to be ultimately reduced, reuse uh, what I call wisely. That's why actually we decided to come up with this uh, consensus in terms of recertification. And another thing that we face a challenge actually, how to, uh, dengue is there. Dengue never run away from us. So we come up with a, uh, a very little poster to differentiate between dengue and COVID. Because during uh, the height of uh, COVID, people tend to start to forget about dengue. So we worry, there's a few cases actually, we have uh, people was misdiagnosed COVID, uh, what called uh, misdiagnosed dengue as COVID. So, so the department realized this and we come up with this and train our staff again in how to differentiate between the two, as at least at the levels of the emergency department. And then we introduce new tools, which is the lung ultrasound, which is very potent uh, uh, equipment that can be used not just for the purpose of diagnostic but also triaging, screening and also staging and we actually put together a very uh, what we call a simple algorithm based on the lung ultrasound changes. So started off for example like this you can see on the left one which is for the mild form the one in the middle which is uh, moderate and the one on the right side is severe form of pneumonia that can be easily picked up by lung ultrasound. So these are another tools that has been used to replace chest x-ray which is unnecessarily expose our patient if there is no need to see for them to have a chest x-ray. So and at the same time we keep a safe distance. So these are the algorithm that we come up with actually putting together lung ultrasound together with the clinical what we call uh, context. So if the patient, uh, if the patient is PUI, SARI, or ILI, one of the things apart from the history and physical examination, we do the lung ultrasound. If the lung ultrasound is what we call uh, normal and this patient is symptomatic, then we're going to follow what we call with point of care ultrasound to look at other organs. If the answer is there's some abnormality, of course, this patient will be admitted. But if the, if the lung ultrasound is abnormal, what we do, we look, we're going to look at the lesion distribution. And if it's involved what we call the posterior zone, these are actually the same as stage three, meaning that those patients have pneumonia. And if the patient, and we do a point of care ultrasound, there's no organ dysfunction, and this patient may, may require oxygen supplement, so on and forth, these are actually stage four. And if it's become more severe, then it's actually stage five. This is a very simple algorithm that we utilize in emergency department uh, 
not withholding the needs of chest x-ray, but at least actually it's more targeted in terms of the physical assessment and the tool required for that, the patient's need. So and then it's not just that, we're putting everything together uh, based on the symptomology, based on the lab findings, based on the lung ultrasound findings, and we can actually come up with the staging and of course the proposed treatment actually or the proposed management for the patient. So these, these are something that we come up with actually during this pandemic. We never thought that we come up with this, but uh, we have to be innovative, we have to be creative, and this is the way that we're able to stratify our patient accordingly based on the patient needs. And lastly, this is actually part, this is only a draft actually, uh, but it's been approved by the CPRC. Putting together actually those patients that warrant what I call the rapid test, uh, antigen test for our patient that under the category of ILI. So this is, I think this one will come up uh, in the next editions of the MOH guideline regarding management of COVID. It's something that we're going to look into. Why that we did this actually is for the purpose to ensure that we're able to pick up our patients early. So with all the initiative, actually, we thought it's going to be temporary. By the look at it, it's going to be permanent. So we have need to inculcate the new norms. So, and we know actually what COVID has taught us. So this preparation is only half of the battle. It requires very much multidisciplinary collaboration because I think we realize it's a collective responsibility. And we also realize that we cannot trust our patient. So our PPE is actually very much important for us actually to make sure that we are really protected and we need to be innovative uh, in order to make sure that we're able to optimize all the tools that we have actually with us. So in summary, I think COVID-19 will be there. So you can never get away. So we put it in, 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 in what we call, uh, if you have anything to say about it, I think, we need to realize actually in terms of the norms, uh, it need to be screened, it need to detect, we need to isolate, we need to test and then we to treat. And our triage system will be based on the systems of severity and infectivity. And our structural norms will be based on negative pressure and isolate. It's no more open cubicle concept. And our physical examination alone actually is not suffice. We have to follow on with focused examination any usage of extended tools like portable ultrasound. What about handling procedures with PPEs? These are something that we need to inculcate to all our doctors because AGPs is a very significant risk to our, what we call healthcare providers. And the types of medical equipment we're going to utilize actually must ensure that we're able to maintain a safe distance to the patient. That's why now we are advocating video assisted langoscope. We are advocating mechanical CPR rather than hands-on CPR for our patient. And of course, we are also advocating a close suction methods for our patient. So that's in a way that we have done. I think all of us know, actually, you know, to climb to the top is very tough. To maintain at the top even tougher. Now, what we have done now, actually, we flat the curve, but even to maintain the flat curve is even more challenging. So, so all of us realize that. Okay, with that, I would like to thank actually all of you for listening and I open for any question. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Martha. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I think, uh, we will leave the questions to the end.
uh, when we do the session Q&A together with the other two uh, panelists. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for the audience. Please, by all means, put up your questions on, start putting your questions on Slido so then we won't forget. Uh, I think uh, Martha has just stressed a very important point that uh, a lot of how we have done so far is dependent on how we clearly. Uh, I guess the world was in better commerce lucky in a way that we had other novel infections prior to this pandemic and uh, there were learning lessons for, for each uh, outbreak that we had in that learning lessons. So it was a bit of a walk to memory lane when I see uh, when I see Mahata showing all the old pictures of the emergency department at AMD back in those days with SARS. Uh, uh, clearly, one important thing is we have to adapt and innovate as we go along. Certain things will never be the same again. Uh, I think no one should just nebulize an aesthetic patient without thinking a little bit harder nowadays, whether they have uh, COVID or whether they know they have COVID or whether they are not known to have COVID. Because now we know there are quite a lot of asymptomatic damage of COVID uh, around the world. So things may never be really the same again. Uh, moving on, so thank you, Martha. Hold on, and uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions for you later on. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. Muhammad Kazia bin Sheikh Ahmad. Uh, I had the opportunity to work closer with uh, Kazia during the last bit of my career. Uh, he is the head of Health Informatics Center at the Ministry of Health in Malaysia. He is now leading the development of the Malaysian Health Data Warehouse, MyHPW. The project was developed using more than 90% local technology and was launched by the Health Minister uh, in April of 2017. Uh, he will share more about what uh, uh, MyHEW uh, in this presentation, and I'll leave there. He will also be uh, assisted in the presentation by two of his colleagues. I'll leave him to introduce them. So, uh, Kaze, you have the floor. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Uh, good morning to you and to everybody in the uh, uh, good afternoon <laughs> and then <laughs> in the audience. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we have two set of presentation. Number one is on the data warehouse itself in general, so that uh, in any time in the near future we can apply uh, for future use. And then one of my colleagues, Dr. Noraida is going to do the presentation on the data that we can manage. Uh, so there'll be some uh, limitation and it's important to remember and to know this limitation because our interpretation of the data uh, depends very much on the limitation that we have to avoid any confusion when we present the data. Okay, uh, can we start uh, with the demo? Uh, this is our Malaysian Health Data Warehouse. What you see in front of you is the, um, the home page. The moment we are given access to go into, into Malaysian Health Data Warehouse, you will see this. And then we have data collecting system in system maklumat rawatan pelanggan, in um, e-reporting, and also patient registry information system. And they function very differently. Uh, after that, when you have the data, the data goes traditionally into Malaysian Health Data Warehouse and this serves a different function for that purpose. Uh, the data can be uh, prepared to, uh, visual, to be visualized as a form of um, fixed format report 
uh, query and also the uh, dashboard. And then we have enhanced the mission health data warehouse. And recently we are preparing and finalizing what would be in our dashboard. What we intend to do inside that dashboard is all our indicators will appear in the dashboard. For example, we are working with the uh, teams in Perancangan. Uh, all the, the, the KPI, uh, the SDG, the UAC and so on. And hopefully we can uh, visualize them in our dashboard inside Mahal Data Warehouse. And I think this will bring values because we can trust the figure that we generate inside this data, the data warehouse. Uh, it's no more manual. And number two, the next one is our GIS. Uh, and this is where we generate our visualization in terms of the um, geospatial and whatnot. And that is being used by CPRC's team to project the figures and whatnot inside data warehouse. And uh, the next one is MyHarmony. This is an application to analyze our unstructured data. We still have a lot to do because we have started with um, uh, cardiology, that is text analysis. And now we are trying to work with uh, dental uh, because we are trying to analyze the data that, that is being collected by the dentist. And that data is on the um, process and procedure for dental uh, so that you can get more information out of that detailed information that we can provide. And then later on, we will work with the um, traditional Chinese medicine. The data is collected by the uh, Tungshin Hospital and also uh, the hospital is in Penang. And we are now trying to do a mapping of the terminology in Pinyin to terminology in Snowmat City, uh, which is English. So uh, the work is in progress. So we have not seen anything uh, yet. And then uh, after that, we are also preparing the statistic and predictive analytics. So this is where we are trying to uh, promote uh, whatever statistic that we can do in, for the data inside Data Warehouse. And in the near future, if we have the funding, what we like to do is the researcher especially, and this uh, mainly for the uh, those in NIH, they, they wanted to do analysis, but they wanted to bring their own data and whatnot. And what is important is also uh, for Malaysian Health Data Warehouse, we wanted to protect the integrity, the privacy and security. So we, won't, uh, we do not encourage uh, any individual to take out the data at all. So uh, the future development is important in that sense. At the end of the day, data stay inside and stay safe. Not only the COVID, uh, during this COVID, but the, the data stay inside Mahal Data Warehouse and stay safe. The next one, uh, the preparation. The work that we have done refers to uh, geographic information system and the early work that we have done uh, fortunately in middle of last year uh, was to prepare the disaster management module inside GIS and one of the things that we have prepared is 
working with them, we would be able to know distribution of human resource. This under healthcare resource management, we would know distribution of medical devices. We would know the uh, healthcare transportation we have uh, in all our hospital in uh, Malaysia. So this is very much uh, used during the outbreak and it is very useful. By the way, um, Pusat Informatik Kesihatan is not the uh, expert in disaster management. We have to work with CPRC, uh, which stands for uh, Crisis Preparedness and Response Center. So the feedback is coming from the CPRC. And uh, so these are the CPRC in Kaulan Penyakit and also CPRC in Bahagian Perkembangan Perubatan. So they provide us the requirement and this is what we put inside the system. And the updated version, it must be stipulated by them. We only provide the system. And this is what you see inside the system. Now, the next one, this is also provided by us and this is projected through the CPRC COVID-19 surveillance. And uh, automatically you can see the, uh, the data. But I have to remind uh, everybody that the data is as good as that particular day. So it has not been properly validated dan sebagainya. Uh, not properly validated, but it has been validated at that level, not beyond that. Uh, that is why we are proposing to CPRC so that all the data goes into Mahal Data Warehouse so that all the cleaning is done inside Mahal Data Warehouse, you will get more reliable. Of course, it is a challenge because the data can be many things. It can be duplicated and whatnot. But this is as good as we can provide them. The GIS also provides for the heat map that will demonstrate the concentration of the diseases and this, yeah, and that refers to the incidents. And this is important during the outbreak management so that we know where they are and they see the pattern day by day. So, uh, for example, uh, during the MCO movement order, uh, this is where, uh, this is very much used to make decision, uh, which are the state with high incidence of uh, COVID-19 or which uh, particular area you need to fully lock down. Okay. Uh, I will leave to CPRC uh, guys to, uh, if they are here, to provide the uh, feedback and also uh, decision-making process. Can we go to the next uh, presentation? So uh, can I conclude my presentation on what is available inside my health data warehouse? What we really need is support from everybody in Ministry of Health to, to use the data, uh, to use the data and also to key in the data because it is as, the my health data warehouse is only as good as you key in the data. Uh, can I now invite Dr. Chris, uh, Dr. Noraida, to present the uh, some of the available data that we have been collecting? Yeah. Uh, yes, thank you, Kavya. Please do. Thank you. Hello and assalamualaikum. Uh, very good afternoon to you all. So, um, actually, what the data that we have been gathered from the system by WSLE 
depends on the key in of the data from the hospital as well as the clinic. So there have been uh, some uh, backlogs in terms of uh, data collection in MyHijablu. Uh, this problem is mainly because of the uh, the lack of uh, uh, infrastructure in terms of uh, PCs, in as well as because of the 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 need for the medical record officer to actually uh, review and revise and actually to validate the uh, discharge uh, from the patient in these uh, hospitals. From uh, the Excel, we can see that actually this is the code for the. Uh, ICD code for uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, cases. Uh, we only sorry yeah. to interrupt. We cannot see your screen. We are still we have to change. We are still seeing Kazir's post class. Uh, can you all see me? See now the Excel? Yes, thanks. Good. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So uh, this data actually uh, generated from MyHW uh, with regards to the cases has been discharged uh, from uh, hospital, uh, Ministry of Health Hospital, as well as several uh, private hospitals that actually uh, integrated with MyGW. Uh, this code is U07.1 as well as U07.2 is the ICD codes for uh, COVID-19. We only received this code actually uh, from the WHO last March. So uh, the two codes actually for uh, COVID-19 cases, uh, virus present and 7.2 is a virus not present. This code uh, uh, for confirm uh, COVID-19 cases and this is uh, for PUI cases. So as now we can see that actually total cases up to today is around 6,000 but the data that we have is only about 3,000 that is only half. The main problem that we can, so I must tell you all this is the caveat for this uh, results depends on the data that has been submitted to the system. So in my WD, we have this problem uh, in terms of getting inpatient. Uh, but we also actually expect that actually the uh, cases from the uh, clinics, from the primary care to be input in this MyHW system which is uh, uh, probably not very well uh, managed by the clinics uh, people. So the next slide that we, that we would like to share is actually, so the trend <laughs> of uh, inpatient discharge by uh, the states, we can see that on average, every month we have around 200,000 uh, cases being discharged. And from uh, January 2020 onwards, it seems uh, the discharge uh, was uh, around that figure. But however, uh, when the pandemic was declared and we started with the MCO, MCO uh, we have uh, seen the reduction of uh, discharge. But also, I must tell you, this is caveat. This data that we have in MyHW is depend on the input by the uh, medical record officers or the doctors from the inpatient medical record office. So it is expected, it is anticipated that this uh, result uh, uh, has uh, shown a reduction in terms of this number. I think. Um, from uh, what we can see, I think we can deduce that actually uh, 
on overall on overall we see that is, there is some um, reduction in terms of uh, inpatient discharge uh, from uh, when the covid-19 pandemic has uh, been uh, found in malaysia i think uh, for now what we can see actually the actual granular data is not available in MSW yet because the data owner is uh, with CPRC. I think the CPRC people would have a better, much uh, clearer picture if we want to see uh, in terms of the COVID-19 uh, cases or the incidences in Malaysia. I think uh, that's all that I can share with you all uh, for the time being. Thank you. Thank you, Noranda. Thank you. Uh, I think clearly the data is, I think it's what we see on the ground as well, the number of hospital uh, admissions have significantly dropped everywhere. And of course, they bring up some concerns. I mean, some of it is intuitive. We understand that the elective surgeries have all been postponed and cancelled. So obviously, that chunk of uh, admissions will be away. Motor vehicle accidents, as Martha showed, the data has dropped. That's, I guess, a silver lining in COVID. Less fewer cars on the road, fewer motor vehicle accidents. That, that is explainable. But I think the biggest concern is all the NCDs that we look after in hospitals, and there are tons of them. And uh, we worry that we'll just push the control of NCD further down the line. We have kicked the can further down the road. And I think we must be prepared for, in the months ahead, to see many patients with NCDs coming into the emergency with their NCDs way out of control and in crisis mode. So I think we need to be prepared for that. So there will be a penalty for this, and it's not as, as if we meant for this to happen or it's our fault, but it is a natural event of what's might happen, what's going to happen. So thank you very much, Kajia and Narada, for, for sharing of my HDW. A lot of potential, but I repeat what they repeatedly said the whole presentation. It depends on the integrity and of the data that is put in. Uh, the faster it's put in, the more accurate data that's put in, uh, my HDW has tons of potential. So we hope. So this is a word of advertisement from Mila. Please, uh, please uh, help us get the MHW uh, in a much better place. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, hold on for questions. We'll move on to our last but not least, uh, our speaker, speaker, Professor Dr. Ng Chi Wan. Um, she is a professor of public health in the Department of Social and Preventive Medicine at the University of Malaya. Uh, Prof Ng is an expert in health systems and policies. Hi, Prof. How are you? Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, she is uh, well affiliated to many international bodies, including working with the WHO. So uh, I will now pass it to her. She has a very interesting topic to deal with. I'll let her introduce the topic herself. She will do uh, more justice to it than me. Uh, so, Prof, uh, you have the floor. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me just share my screen. Are you all able to see this? Uh, yes, we can. Yes, thank you. First of all, I would like to thank Dr. Go and her team in NIH uh, for inviting me this afternoon to share this uh, preliminary findings with you. Now, uh, we are looking at the burden of deaths during this time of COVID-19. Uh, unlike the very famous novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, I'm sure you've heard of this novel, Love in the Time of Cholera. 
uh, in which she wrote a lovely story uh, tracing the, the life of two lovers over five decades. Uh, our work on death in the time of corona that I'm going to present to you today is just looking at a very short span of five months. Just like uh, Chris said just now, uh, the NIH has asked that I uh, read this to you. Uh, this presentation intended to inform healthcare professionals only and not for public consumption. Uh, in particular to my presentation today, please do take note that the findings are still preliminary. We are very, very early in our stage of uh, exploration into the mortality burden. I am quite sure that all of you today listening to me uh, are very familiar with this figure. This is a figure that was published by Financial Times on uh, in 20, I think on 20th, 27th of April. This figure tells us about the burden of all-cause mortality in 14 high-income countries. What it shows is that in the pandemic weeks in March and April of this year, many of those countries had a surge, a spike in deaths, which over exceeded, over, was over the numbers of the officially declared COVID-19 deaths in those countries. Overall, in these 14 high-income countries, a Financial Times estimated that uh, there were more than 50% more deaths in those pandemic weeks in April and March over the five-year historical average of those countries. Needless to say that uh, this article in Financial Times has generated a lot of interest worldwide as well as here in Malaysia. But the question you want to ask ourselves is, why are we so interested in deaths? Why are we so interested? Why is this intense interest in mortality statistics and not specific to COVID like what Nuraida has been saying, but all-cause mortality? What the Financial Times article in April showed is that there could be potential under-reporting of COVID-19 deaths in those 14 countries. And this is not surprising. Some patients, some people with COVID-19 may die at home or before they get even tested and confirmed to have COVID-19. As in the case of the United Kingdom in April, the official figures of COVID-19 deaths only covered deaths from hospitals. And what happened after the statistical office released their uh, mortality statistics it was found that the COVID-19 deaths actually were double what was announced because the statistical office also collated data from long-term care uh, facilities uh, in which many COVID-19 patients died. Now, this sort of information uh, has raised questions about how UK has handled this uh, management of COVID-19 cases discharging COVID-19, positive COVID-19 cases back to the care of long-term care facilities. We are looking at the political uh, fallout of this policy decision and it may 
be um, negatively reflect uh, Boris Johnson's policies in the past. Now, another reason why there is intense interest in mortality statistics is very clearly, uh, it came out very clearly from the presentation of the two speakers we heard earlier today. Healthcare resources are currently being prioritized for COVID care. To date, about nearly a billion new financial resources, um, one billion ringgit is being invested in prevention and management of COVID cases. Dr. Mahatas just said that attendances in HKL, A&E, for medical reasons have dropped. Nuraida also mentioned that hospital discharges have dropped. Of course, we understand that they may not have been keyed into the system, that, but that may reflect the actual reality. We clinicians know that a lot of appointments have been postponed and a lot of elective surgical procedures and tests have also been postponed. The other reason about why uh, higher mortality may result from these measures to contain spread of COVID-19 is our non-pharmacological interventions, like our movement control order in Malaysia. These restrictions of movements may reduce accessibility to care in, uh, for many of our patients, uh, especially for those with NCDs. Or, in the case of India, may actually reduce mortality. I think Dr. Chris has repeatedly said today that uh, mentioned uh, this road traffic accidents, mortality from road traffic accidents. For all you know, it may be the same in Malaysia, that MCO prevented people from driving around and reduced mortality resulting from uh, road traffic accidents. We have yet to find out. The other reason why uh, mortality numbers may increase during this time is the fact that COVID-related economic slowdown has affected many of our families. Uh, they will now have reduced financial resources being made available for buying care, buying food and other uh, services that's required for the well-being of families. Now, for all these reasons and many more, we wanted in, in our small group to see whether those spikes of mortality counts, death rates that Financial Times saw in the 14 high-income countries uh, occurred here in Malaysia. And for this study, what we got from the Department of Statistics Malaysia was national mortality data sets from 2016 until the March of 2020 this year. This totals nearly 710,000 deaths. I, I know there are a lot of questions that you're going to ask me. Dr. Go uh, fired the first shot a few days ago. Are our RTA, road traffic accidents, lower or higher? The, how does it impact our death rates? our death counts. I can't answer that. And this is the reason why. In the interest, in the urgency of the matter, the personnel and the Department of Statistics offered us 
as much relevant current data that they could. And the mortality data sets 2019 and whatever we could gather in 2020 are raw data. They have yet to be coded. So this is the very, like I said, the very, very early part of our journey. And there's a lot more analysis and research that needs to be done to answer those very interesting questions that I'm sure all of you would have. But let us start this journey. This is a graph of all-cause mortality. This is counts of deaths in Malaysia from the 1st of January to the end of March 2020. You will notice that uh, I've, during the start of cases being seen in Malaysia from the 25th of January, unlike the graph that we saw in the Financial Times, there is no spike in deaths. There's no spike in death counts. What we do see is that roughly a week before the 18th of March, 2020, the start of the MCO, there was a drastic, very steep drop in the number of daily deaths reported to the Department of Statistics and National Registration Department. Why may that be so? In Malaysia, it is, is a legal requirement for all births and deaths to be registered one week after the birth or the death. However, uh, there was a dispensation because of the MCO and now registration of births and deaths have been permitted to be extended to 90 days after the, the end of the MCO. And we suspect this is the reason why there is this sharp drop in daily deaths from roughly about 10th of March onwards. Therefore, it is not going to be very productive to look at this tail end of the uh, numbers of deaths in this year. This is a reproduction of the work done for Financial Times, uh, as seen in the Financial Times article. Let me take you through this uh, graph slowly. What you see in the black, this one, which has the sharp drop over here, this black, are the numbers of daily deaths from the 1st of January until the end of March. What you see in this blue line over here is the average daily death. This is the historical three-year average daily death from 2017 to 2019 over the same period. If you look at the two lines and this, this figure, it's if you look at it just one shot, one glance, that doesn't seem to be more deaths reported this year uh, from January to March as compared to the three-year historical average from 2017 to 2019. We quantified the difference. And if you were to take the period if you can see my arrowhead here, of January to 18th of March, this red line, we found that January to March of this year, 18 March of this year, there were actually 1,105 less 
deaths as compared to the historical uh, average of three years over the same period. If you were to look at this January to 10th of March, this red line, we found only two more deaths this year compared to the three-year average, historical average of the same period from 2017 to 2019. What I'm saying is that over this period, January to 10th of March, that doesn't appear to have more deaths in Malaysia compared to the historical average of the past three years over the same period of time. But what was interesting is this. We know certain diseases hit people from different age groups differently, especially COVID. If you were to look at this graph, uh, this one first, less than 20 years, the blue is the 2020 line, the red here is the average over three years, doesn't seem to be very different. The ages 20 to 59 years, the blue 2020, this the red, three-year average, possibly some difference. However, if you look at the age group 60 years and older, the blue 2020, this year the three-year average, it does look as though the deaths of this older age group from the 1st of January to 10th of March appear to be higher this year compared to three-year average. I enlarged that particular uh, figure here. Look at the blue lines. Okay, That is the daily deaths for this year. The red line, average deaths three years from 2017 to 2019. It does look as though there were more deaths this year. We quantified it. If you're looking at the very young, less than 20, 20 years old, there were 225 less, less deaths this year. For those aged 20 to 59, there were 234 less deaths this year. But for those aged 60 years and older, there were 461 more deaths this year compared to the same period over the last three years. Some of you may be interested not just in the deaths this year. Some of you may also have experienced and read about that uh, there were more deaths last year from flu. And should we not look at at least the last three months of last year and compare the number of deaths during those times with the historical average? So first, this is a graph of daily deaths from the 1st of October 2019 to the end 31st December 2019. Please ignore this. It's, it's an artifact that I haven't got rid of yet. 
And what you see here are more than 400 daily deaths in Malaysia. What you have in blue here is over the same period of time, historical three-year average daily deaths from the years 2016 to 2018. And this more clearly than for the January to March figures that I showed earlier, appear to show that there were more deaths last year over this three-month period compared to the historical three-year average from 2016 to 2018. We quantified this difference. From 2000, over the period of October to December, there were 1,015 more deaths. If you were to look at the period, November to December, there were 825 more deaths. In other words, over the three years, we had, I mean, three months, we had about 1,000 more deaths, which mainly occurred in November and December of last year. We again disaggregated by age group. If you look here, those less than 20 years doesn't appear to be very different from last year and the three years before then. You look at the age group, 20 years to 59 years, there could possibly be some difference. However, if you look at the 60 years and older, look at the black line, which is the line for last year, compared to the average of the three years before then in red, very clearly there were more deaths among the older age group, 60 years and older, compared to the three-year historical average. Again, I repeat, I replicated that figure here for the 60 years and older. It does appear that 60 years and older, the death counts were higher last year, in the last three months of last year, than compared to the historical three-year average. We quantified the difference again. If you look at the young, less than 20, there were 363 less deaths. If you look at the 20 to 59 years, there were 34 less deaths. If you look at the 60 years and older, there were 1,412 more deaths. I collected all those numbers and put it into this table, looking at differential mortality counts from October of last year until the 10th of March of this year. Overall, there were 1,017 more deaths. But all of this occurred among those aged 60 years and above. For those younger, age 20 and below, 20 to 59, there were actually less deaths over this same period of time compared to the three-year historical average. Now it comes to this. I'm afraid my presentation raises more questions than I have answers for. First of all, are there truly more deaths among the elders? Or can this be explained by more elders last year and this year? And therefore, there were just more counts of deaths. I will need to standardize by population numbers, and that will be the next phase of the, the exploration. If 
there were more deaths. What did they die of? The question that we want to answer is, did they die of some respiratory problems? Did they die of COVID undetected, undiagnosed? Why were there more deaths from October to uh, December? Sorry, a typo here, last year. Is it true that perhaps these were not COVID deaths? They were deaths from flu, for instance? Or were, was there COVID in Malaysia undetected? I have presented numbers for the whole country, Malaysia. Question asked could be, were the deaths concentrated in some states, Klang Valley or even Singapore and, uh, sorry, or even Johor near to Singapore, which could give you some inkling that could be related to COVID? What about urban areas versus rural areas? I can't answer those questions now, I'm afraid. And the search for answers like these to questions like this continues. Before I end my presentation, I would like to acknowledge the contribution by my project team members, all of whom are listed here. And thank you for listening. And I welcome questions after this. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, thank you very much. Very intriguing as, as, as usual. More questions uh, than answers. And, and that's what makes a good presentation, I guess. It makes us think a bit harder. Uh, thank you very much. It's enlightening. I know there are still bits and uh, of data missing, so obviously in certain answers we can't give us yet. Um, but last year we all know that uh, Malaysia did have a bad spell of influenza as well. Uh, on the ground, there was certainly, uh, in terms of surveillance, there was more influenza flying around. And last year was uh, one of the uh, years that were particularly bad for our country. So that could very well explain the increased number of deaths among the older population. But yes, we do need to look at the granular data uh, to answer that question better. Uh, now, okay, uh, thank you all for the, to all the three teams and three speakers who have presented today. Uh, now it's time for the questions. Uh, now, please fill up the Slido uh, app and start putting your questions in. I will, I will read off the questions as they come along. Uh, but we also have a team of researchers here at the ICR here, uh, and they are free to ask questions directly uh, via the mic if they choose to. Or I hope they're not too shy. Probably uh, have some questions to ask. Uh, okay, let's start off with some uh, pretty standard questions first. I think mean, people do want to know answers to this. Uh, this probably is uh, meant for Mahata. Uh, regarding mechanical C uh, CPR. Is it possible to be distributed in other hospitals in Malaysia? Uh, is it very costly? Uh, Mahata? Uh, thank you very much for that question. Uh, if we say costly, I think it's relative based on how you want to value that equipment. You know? It sounds very philosophical, that, but it's very true. Uh, a piece of those devices is ranging from 50,000 ringgit to 80,000 ringgit per piece. But what important is that CPR itself actually is very much uh, aerosol generating procedures. Uh, to, keep, to keep the record straight, in fact, we have cases of healthcare worker infected due to hands-on CPR. So I think this is, it is a, something that needs to be carried out. Either it can be distributed to all hospitals, that's the ultimate aim. In fact, as part of Ministry of Health, uh, what I call initiative under emergency medicine services, 
we advocate for such equipment to be utilized in all EDs in Malaysia. I agree with you, it's all relative how much you, how you value a particular equipment. Um, I guess it all depends on also how much resources we have and other priorities that we have to balance. That's something for the emergency service, head of service to think about. That's for you to think about. Now, I, I want to follow up question myself uh, concerning the new norm in ED. Uh, we all know that we, you, you split it to respiratory and non-respiratory, and we understand that respiratory, of course, the risk of COVID contamination or COVID involvement is certainly higher. But we also know that if there are more and more cases of asymptomatic carriage of, uh, of COVID, uh, uh, they're either asymptomatic completely and coming for some other problem, or they may be pre-symptomatic, which is actually quite common. Now, so in terms of PPE uh, going forward, uh, what is the basic PPE that, uh, how do you organize the PPE in terms of the, the non-respiratory side of it? Someone coming with uh, chest pain, someone coming with uh, infected toenail or something like that. You know, how, yeah. how, what is your basic PPE then? Uh, thank you very much, Dato. I think that's a very relevant question. In fact, if you uh, remember one of the last few slides I put up actually when we are incorporating the rapid test kit or rapid test antigen. There's two arms there. One arm actually on those patients that came in with the respiratory system, but the other arm that those patients that came in without respiratory system. So for those came in that without the rapid respiratory system, actually we look into the high risk of the probabilities of those patients that are possibly to have COVID or not. So not just that, but the clinical suspicion based on the clinical suspicion that we do for those patients who actually will, what I call, uh, increase the likelihood that this patient will have COVID. Having said that, uh, what more important, we already advocated uh, for all patients or for all healthcare workers that work in this department, the basic PPE will, will be face mask, surgical three-ply face mask, uh, the apron and glove. I think that has been advocated. That is part of the recommended guideline actually uh, in uh, Ministry of Health. And this is new. I think last time actually we don't do this, but I think from this time on, it's going to be a big necessity for us. Yes. Okay, yes, I totally agree with you. I think remember during SARS, because SARS, most of the infection transmission occurred when patients are symptomatic, and we use that quite a bit. We try actually, yep. yeah, this, in this case now, we can't let it I think your answer is extremely important, not just for the emergency services, but also the general medical services, and also our yep. GPs and primary care, because they also deal with cases like this. Uh, and they have to also now, especially our private colleagues, I wonder whether we have engaged the general practitioners as well, because they also need to protect themselves and their staff as well. So I think that's what you said just now is relevant for them as well. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, thanks, Martha. Uh, there will be other questions, but I'm going to move on to the other speakers first. Uh, Kajay, uh, a technical question here. Uh, I can't answer this question myself. How is the data cleaning done within my HDW? Um, within my HDW, we have a system that cleans the data. We have to, but we have to input the algorithm for that purpose. Uh, it is called uh, extraction, transform, and load. So whatever the data comes from the source system will go through the process. And this is the 
uh, application that cleans the data. And then number two, uh, number two that we would like to say is, we also have the data and information quality framework. And this is where we monitor our data quality. Right, okay, uh, thanks. Um, I, I'm sure, I, I know, I've heard Kalita with this, he has a much longer version of that answer, but he has kept it brief uh, because of time. Uh, now, uh, someone wants to know, how do we get access to the data? Is there a way for us to find out what type of data is available to each of the platforms or modules? Okay. Thank you for the uh, interest. Uh, we have the Data and Information Governance Committee and Guidelines. Uh, if you're Malaysian, you're eligible to apply to get access to the data. It will be anonymized data, but you have to uh, send your application to Director General. And then we will follow up after that. Is that good enough answers? Sorry. You were mute the whole time. Huh? You were mute just now. So now I just unmute. Oh, okay. Dr. Chiu didn't like me. She muted me. So I was talking to myself. Sorry, sorry for that. I have to repeat it again. Uh, now in, in the, my data warehouse, uh, data in regards to COVID-19. Uh, we know we have uh, background data of how many hospital admissions we have throughout, hospital, throughout the uh, government machinery. We also know how many clinic encounters we, we have, especially for the NCDs, which is a, a big concern of ours. We have seen glimpses of data from our speakers just now that our clinic encounters, we didn't see clinic encounters, but we know clinic encounters have dropped. We know emergency encounters have dropped and hospital admissions have also dropped for the general population. Uh, how does the, the data in my, uh, my HDW help us plan for what we need to do now? Because the problems that we see day to day in our normal days before COVID is not going to disappear. They're going to be there. I'm talking of the MCDs especially. They are out there waiting for us to see them again. I hope not many people will. I hope people will survive long enough for us to get to them. But how does the data in my HDW help us prepare going forward? Is that the question for me? Yes, Kajay, it's for you. <laughs> HDW. Uh, which one is the one? Uh, because I think the last, uh, the last three was uh, interrelated with uh, in relation health at our house. Your question was on which one? No, I, I'm talking about generally the, the data that we have. We know normally how many uh, clinic encounters we have in the whole country, isn't it? No, we have yeah. background data. We also mm -hmm. will know in the last three months with MCO there, the number of encounters that we couldn't give out, the mm -hmm. uh, So especially for NCDs, we have to deal with them again. As we open up, the patients will come back. In fact, we want them to come back. Now, how do mm -hmm. we deal with it? Uh, I know recently Dr. Dishan has already sent out a guideline uh, uh, to Dr. Rahizad about how to prepare our hospital and clinic facilities uh, post-MCO as such. Uh, and we are talking of social distancing within our clinic setting, how to space out our clinic, extended hours, etc., etc., including virtual clinics. Uh, but that is just a general platform of guidance. But in terms of the actual workload, does MHDW, will it tell us how much we have to do now? How much we need to search up our capacity 
to look after all this, uh, especially uh, NCDs that we normally have to look after. Okay, uh, a good question. Thank you. We monitor uh, data quality, and one of the criteria to in in monitoring the data quality is about how much data is inside data warehouse. And inside data warehouse, we have uh, we have development that is in going. And the first one that we deliver was about two years ago. It is it is on inpatient and daycare. What we monitor is the number of submission into the data warehouse. When we say submission of data, it refers to the denominator is the number of uh, patient inside the book and the inside the registration book and in the numerator is the number of data that they input inside the system. So there will be a submission for inpatient, submission for daycare and that is being monitored and I think we are good as far as inpatient uh, and daycare because the number is more than the 95%. That's one. We are also looking at four sectors within the system. <clears throat> There are sex sectors that represent hospital within the Ministry of Health. There are sectors that represent the university. There are sectors that represent the army. And there are sectors that represent the private hospital. We are still struggling or working to uh, encourage everybody from the university and the army and the private hospital to key in the data. We used to have a good data from the private hospital if they enforce the private healthcare facilities and services regulation. But we were informed that we will give them a lot of opportunity ample time uh, for them to get used to this. And then next year, hopefully, we can uh, enforce the law so that we can get uh, good data. Uh, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Answers the next question to some degree. Uh, someone made a comment here that uh, MyHDW is a fantastic platform. Is MOH working with private sector in any way to collect and input data into the system? You've already answered that question. So let's, yes. let's look forward, forward to that. Uh, thank you, Nadim. All right. I, I'm going to move on to, to, to the, our final speaker. There are some other questions, but uh, let's, let's share the airtime. Uh, you give a very intriguing uh, presentation to make many of us think. Uh, I mean, and that, that the so your main reason you think the number of deaths have dropped among the older population is because people have not registered their mortality yet. Uh, that was one of the main reasons why you explained that drop, didn't it? Uh, so we can expect that in the coming months to see a sharp rebound in terms of registration if that if our if our hypothesis is correct we should be seeing that is that correct problem? uh yes but the death registration is dependent on the date of death so you won't have this immediate drop steep drop that you saw in the graph and then a very sharp up up tick up a uh, spike it will be backdated to before the MCOs. So yes, uh, the numbers will go up. Uh, 
If I may, I would like to answer the, the question that was uh, propping up, um, asking about when the, the mortality data will be clean and when the mortality data will be used for further analysis to answer some of the questions that you raised. Uh, the mortality data is now being cleaned uh, together with the Department of Statistics. Uh, we are all under a lot of uh, pressure to, to come up with uh, current analysis. Uh, it is a bit unfortunate uh, that because of this MCO, we are not able to get uh, current data, but uh, the backlog of cleaning, it's not the cleaning so much as the coding of the raw data is ongoing. And I hope to be able to share further analysis later. Right. Uh, I, I wanted to ask a question because you mentioned usually about mortality. We also mentioned about birth registration. Uh, we understand because the MCO people you know, cannot get to or have difficulty registering their mortality. Do we see also a drop in births? Because people also uh, have equally difficult getting to register their babies. Is that, is that, is that correct? Uh, I do apologize. I'm very myopic. So in this sense, I was just looking at the deaths and not at the other end of the spectrum, the births. But I can ask uh, the Department of Statistics if uh, the similar uh, findings of a drop after the MCO had been seen for birth registration as well. Okay. I was just thinking, not that I'm having, not that I'm having any more babies, but I was just thinking, you know, because if people can't register deaths, they probably can't register births as well. You know? okay. uh, I'll take that into consideration when I have another baby. Uh, right, yeah, other questions. Okay, let's, uh, uh, I'm going to go back to, there are a lot of ED questions because I think Mahanta brought up many relevant issues that was intriguing as well. Uh, okay, somebody from Sarawak. Uh, are there any suggestions and advice from the emergency services for district hospitals? Uh, as we are, okay, somebody from Sarawak is complaining, as we are always lacking in facilities and manpower in Sarawak. All right. Okay, thank you for that question, actually. We understand very well, actually, the circumstances in Sarawak. I think there's a few things that we have to realize. First and foremost, actually, with regards to the PPE, I think there is, should be any no shortcuts to that in the coming days or in the coming years when uh, managing patients in ED. Secondly, with regards to the equipment per se, why that we advocate. I just give a very simple analogy. Uh, two years back, two to three years back, actually, we have opportunity to work together with our colleague from, from Myanmar, which is all of us knows how Myanmar like in terms of its resources and all that. They have surgeons actually work three or four hours away from the big hospital and all that. And then when, we, when they ask the surgeons actually, what are the most important tools that you want to be at your center in order for you to manage your patient? We, the answer is, they say, I just want an ultrasound machine. Why is that? Because with ultrasound machine, they can do everything. They can, do, they can look at the heart, they can look at the lung, they can look at the limbs, can look at everything because based on the point of care, methods of assessing the patients. So that's why actually for emergency services, actually when our initiative took place, it's not just for Semenanjung, actually it's for all, all over the country. The ultrasound machine that we advocate to be utilized is not the half a million machine, it's not even 200,000 machine. It's less than 50,000 machines, it's portable, it's handheld. 
And these are the ones we advocate, we're very much readily available. And we are sure in the coming years, actually, the even cheaper ultrasound can be used for that uh, purpose. So that, that's my response to those, actually, questions. But I saw there's another question there regarding ultrasound. It's very operator-dependent. Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. So I think that people have to understand there's two uh, ultrasound actually to be used in two ways actually. First actually for organ specific uh, interrogation. The other one actually based on the point of care, uh, what I call base. Point of care base actually for ultrasound has been used widely over the last 20, 30 years actually. In fact, for emergency medicine actually has been used for nearly 20 odd years. And for lung ultrasound itself, actually, is the simplest of them all because of the exposure, the easily, uh, what I call image acquisition that can be easily uh, acquired through the thoracic bit in between the ribs and all that. Um, the, the method that we use, actually, is based on a very focused question and yes or no answer. So rather than interrogate specifically in terms of the image that we acquire, that's first. Secondly, we we'll talk the validation. Actually, there is actually courses available in Malaysia, and these courses have been conducted. It's not by the one discipline. It involves multiple disciplines: medicine, medicine, ICUs. There's components of radiology team also part of that. So you can involve in that. And in terms of the learning curve, actually, for lung ultrasound point of care, point of care actually is very very short in comparison to other system. So it's very much available. So just go through the website, you just write down, uh, write down critical ultrasound Malaysia. There will be courses available for this. And if it's not courses available, you can always contact any one of us actually in Missy Medicine Fraternity for us to give you a line of hand of how actually you, you can utilize the ultrasound as part of your day-to-day -day practices. Uh, thank you, Mahatma. Uh, we have also been talking to the ID people in the wards. It certainly has a use in the emergency setting. It also has a use in the ward setting as we monitor patients uh, and pick up uh, deterioration a little bit faster. So I think so exactly. we're trying to look into it as well. Uh, Thank okay. you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to push it back. I'm trying to squeeze in another one, two questions because time is running out. Uh, I'm going back to prop. Mm, all right. Uh, now, the question is up there. As we are having an aging population, should we not compare yearly mortality data instead of the average of three years? Uh, if we do that, it, we might see an increasing yearly uh, increase uh, before this year, before last year. What do you think, Prof? Uh, yes, that is why I asked the question. Is this higher numbers of deaths among the old really significant? We need to compare with population numbers, population uh, uh, numbers, the demographics by age group. And that's the next part, uh, the next section of our analysis, our research. So this presentation was very, uh, very focused on quantifying the counts, death counts. It is not looking at death rates where the denominator is standardized uh, or to population numbers. Uh, so, like I say, it raises more questions than answers. I can't answer that, not yet. Right. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, just that it would be interesting if you have more time, maybe we'll try to get you back on again when uh, more yeah, Sure. 
when data has been clean and, and there are more answers that, that I can give. Okay, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be trying to find the time to listen to you again. Now, time is running out. Uh, I have to apologize. I'm going to ask for each three, each three speakers to maybe have some parting words uh, before we wrap up for the day. Uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Dr. Mahata first. Mahata? Thank you, Dato. Yeah, thank you, Dato, and thank you for uh, uh, all the panel members. Actually, uh, first and foremost, I think the most important now, actually, from now onwards, actually, we have to realize actually it's not just the new norms for emergency medicine uh, practices, but also new norm to all of our practices. Actually, uh, what the most important point that we need to address actually is the usage of PPEs. As I said again and again, there should be no shortcuts to usage of PPE. Adherence is very important. Number two, actually, we have to uh, go away from our conventional uh, called methods or approach of managing a patient. Rather than using a tools that expose patients to many, many other possibilities and even healthcare workers like CTs, like SSA and all that, we have to use other tools that are able to minimize this exposure. And thirdly, we need to invest on system. Uh, not person. Until now and then we realize that it is solely based on person. Persons come and go, but system stays. I think if you look the way that we move forward in actually managing this pandemic, we put very close attention to the systems. So if the system is solidified, then actually we can move forward very easily to weather the storm. I think that's, that's all from me. Again, thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to present. Thank you. Thanks, Mohata. Right. Uh, Kazim, some parting comments? Okay, thank you, Dato Chris. Uh, the interest that we have as of now, it's about detection of uh, new cases or new outbreak. And that is what we are trying to develop together in PIK for a disaster management module inside the GIS. We will be able to detect uh, increase in trend in certain diseases and that can alert us uh, to a new outbreak or a recent outbreak or existing outbreak. That is the work that we are planning to do. Thank you, Kajan. And another word of advertisement, please continue to look into my uh, HDW because tons of potential there. Uh, Noraida, thanks again also for your presentation. Last but not least, uh, Prof. Ng, I hope you, uh, you, you close with some answers and not just questions. Thank you. No, no answers either. Just a statement. Don't forget the non-COVID. Don't forget that the healthcare system exists for all of us, not just to manage the COVID pandemic. We have patients out there with NCDs, with cancers, and with very minor symptoms or, or diseases that can flare up and become severe if not given care. So my parting word is the system, the healthcare system needs to look after all of us, not just the COVID patients. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well said, uh, um, I think clearly we all agree that uh, now as our numbers continue to improve and we hope that remains the case, uh, we are all nervous about the, another surge in the case uh, once the MCO is gradually lifted. Uh, but we do need to prepare for another surge. That's clearly one of the priorities. 
We also need to be aware of the many cases that we have to see on a daily basis, even before COVID hit the world. And in particular, our MCDs, uh, because if they are fully managed, we know that in the months and years ahead, we as a country will pay the price uh, for, for taking the eye off them. That's extremely challenging for all of us. So I'm glad I'm retired. So you guys carry the flag and do all the good work and do all the heavy lifting. With that, I want to thank all three speakers for their excellent presentations and uh, both for your answers, including your questions. It's okay, all right? We understand. Uh, and I want to thank again the team at ICR, uh, Prof. Go, uh, and the team here. Uh, when they don't mute me and let me talk, I appreciate that. It should be good. So with that, I thank you all. I know many of us have to go back to work, except me. Uh, and I uh, hope you have a productive week. Thank you very much and stay safe. Goodbye.